This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. As an actor, I'm a filmmaker, but I never feel like I deal with ideas. I deal with actions and submitting to the actions and then something happens. And I suppose that becomes an idea, but I never put forward an idea because I'm not an interpreter. I'm, I'm more like an athlete or a dancer, you know, and, and things are expressed in, in um, doing the bidding of the person that's overseeing the world, and that usually is the director. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this bonus episode of The Fourth Wall. I am your host, Griffin Schiller, and this is the show where we break down the fourth wall of the film industry as we get an inside look through our conversations with industry professionals, ranging from directors, actors, you name it. This show is, of course, part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find our weekly film discourse show discussing the latest releases, along with the rest of our show catalog, ranging from Be Real, Indie Beat, and much more. Whatever your fix is, we got you covered over there. So as I mentioned at the top, this is actually a little bit of a bonus episode. When we were planning out interviews for the show and setting the schedule, um, this is a conversation I did not expect to get, and so uh, I figured that... That regardless, you all would enjoy it because it's with one of the greatest actors living today, one of the busiest actors living today, and one of the most versatile actors living today, and that is Willem Dafoe. I was very fortunate to get a decent amount of time with him, and the guy is literally one of the nicest human beings on the planet, and it was really fascinating to just pick his brain on his process when it comes to acting. And one of the most impressive things about him is that he's made over 100 films throughout the course of his career, both independent films, big blockbusters, smaller, middle-sized films, whatever kind of genre you can think of and whatever size movie you can think of. Willem Dafoe has probably done it. He was, of course, Norman Osborn in Green Goblin and Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. He received Academy Award nominations for Platoon, Shadow of the Vampire, for which he also received a Golden Globe and SAG nom for, The Florida Project, and then most recently, At Eternity's Gate, which he was nominated for Best Lead Actor, along with receiving a Golden Globe nomination as well. 2019 is also proving to be a fruitful year for Dafoe as he's starring in Robert Egg indie phenomenon, The Lighthouse, for which he's receiving a fair amount of awards buzz, along with Edward Norton's film noir, Motherless Brooklyn. And the thing I love about both of these projects is that, while very different on the surface, when you dive into it, there are a fair amount of similarities for which we discuss during the course of this conversation. We also talk about his process for performing those incredibly 
incredibly salty monologues in The Lighthouse, getting into character for that film, collaborating with Robert Eggers, what it's like to play a character based off of existing source material, whether it be history or otherwise, versus what it's like to inhabit a wholly original character and how much creative room does he have for both roles. His response to that I found very interesting. We also discussed working with Edward Norton, the director, versus Edward Norton, the actor, and what we can expect out of his collaboration with Guillermo del Toro for Nightmare Alley. This was another excellent conversation that I am so thrilled to finally be able to bring to you all. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Willem Dafoe. And I imagine for The Lighthouse, you've just gotten bombarded with questions about the farts. <laughs> I know, which, you know, I get it, but uh, I, I try to steer it away to other things. I mean, that's part of it. Yeah. And I guess that's good because it becomes less intimidating and, you know, underlines some of the comedy in it. Mm-hmm. And there is comedy, you know, kind of black comedy and also some gross out comedy. But mm-hmm. in the end, when you think about it, there's some beautiful... Um, themes in it that you know kind of get get uh, the oxygen oxygen gets taken up by the fart jokes and that kind of thing oh yeah for sure well i mean it was, watching that film i mean there's many things that that stick out to me about that movie but the um the one the the things that i just love and i i absolutely ate it up were was the uh was the script and i i just, beautiful yeah Good. yeah we I'm, can talk then perfect <laughs> yes <laughs> i because um, i do i do want to talk specifically about uh your process for just delivering these right. i mean i i call them epically salty monologues just because they feel so authentic to the time period um yep. did you have like a favorite one that you performed um um you know, I like them all. I like the language so much. And when I read the script, I thought, wow, this is fantastic. You know, this kind of elevated poetic language is not usually what you get to perform in films because films are so tied to a certain kind of um, naturalistic language. So the trick is to serve this beautiful, uh, you know, imagery and the beautiful rhythm and music of this language, but still keep it rooted and still keep it natural. So it's a challenge, but it's so beautifully written. It, it kind of tells you what to do and is so evocative that emotionally, um, it really stirs my soul. So mm-hmm. I, I, I really like the writing, which of course is a combination of, you know, borrowed slang and, uh, beautiful images. And, uh, you know, and then of course there's the intention of the of the monologues, which each one has a, has a different flavor. So that was, that was great fun to do. Um, and in the, in the, within the visual style and the kind of world, it was really important to deliver them in a way that, you know, they didn't lift away from the story. They really stayed in the story and they were done in a very direct and simple way, not mucked up with a lot of naturalistic gesturing. And, and uh, you know, that wasn't the way to cut it, uh, to, to fold it into natural, in, into feeling natural. It was really more uh, just the attack of it and the intention behind the speeches. Yeah, well, th- I mean, that was like one of the things that initially struck me was because of like, 
how Shakespearean the the writing is, and, and really the the uh, the film in general to an extent, uh, it it felt very accessible. Which I, I, that's that's just a very difficult line to ride, I would imagine. Um, you know, you're helped a lot by you know basically these characters are archetypes, and we recognize them immediately, mm-hmm. and and. I think that helps because people feel comfortable with them. Uh, you know, if you're lazy in your thinking, you see them as cliches until they kind of lift off. But, uh, you know, for me, they're archetypes. So that allows you to um, kind of paint a little broader, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, cover more ground. You don't have to um, set things up because you're already there. And things like the accents help a great deal as well. So it puts you in that place and then we really can get on to the story and, 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 you know, then win the action of it all. Right. It's like, I guess my point is from the opening frame, you kind of know where you are. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. It's, it's very, uh, quite an achievement because some movies take half the movie just to even, uh, set that up. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's even though the film as a whole is is really unlike anything I've ever seen. You you just you're right. Robert Eggers just does a great job of completely immersing you into this this weird like uh, folk tale ish um, mm-hmm. world. I, I, yeah, it's it's really quite remarkable. Um, and I think I read that you initially got involved because you you were like really interested in working with Robert. Uh, after seeing The Witch. So I, I, I guess yep. my question is, uh, did you ever think he would come back to you with like something as, as just off the walls as this? You know, I, I, you know, I don't... Listen, I'm in it, so I'm not thinking of off the wall. Right, and I don't right, think right. of it as off the wall. Um, it's I'd see it as these beautiful opportunities to go places that we're, we aren't normal normally able to go to explore themes that um, are familiar to us, but but uh, are explored in an articulate way because sometimes it's better to go through another period of time to yeah. see clearly. So um, so really, what what I liked about the witch wasn't that it was exotic. It was just about it was just about how you could enter that world. And think in a different way and see in a different way, which is always what I love about movies. You know, it it, it jumpstarts your senses and your thinking. So it makes you feel more alive, more turned on. And I felt like that movie did that for me. Um, Not because it's horror, not because, but because you're able to enter this world. You're able to have another perspective for the period of time you're in that world. So I was sold that he was, uh, uh, you know, film is his his way. Film is his language, and period film in particular, he's he creates a world that doesn't point to itself, which is a real talent. Because generally, in 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 uh, period films, I feel like so much energy is gone. It goes into stating its terms, but as I indicated before, mm-hmm. he gets you right there very quickly. I mean, he's very smart and and really understands, you know, how things signify, you know, without yeah. elaborating them. Uh, he really understands 
story in a way where he's not pointing at it. He's getting the elements placed in right away that just the relationship of the elements uh, starts to make their own story. Yeah. I mean, just his yeah. choice of a lighthouse. I mean, think of how potent that is. Yeah, right. We all have a relationship <laughs> to it. And you get this beautiful mix of, you know, it's a symbol of uh, isolation, but it's also a symbol of service, a symbol of how we connect with each other. Because these guys are dedicating themselves to the protection of people at sea, you know? Right. Right. That's there. And they're interfa- you know, they're coming up against nature um, in adverse circumstances. There's all these this swirl of um themes that get set up very quickly because uh, uh Rob Eggers has such a, a a good sense of um expressing things through his love for research and his love for the past because it speaks to him. It tells him about our experience now. Yeah. He's really got uncanny uh, connection to the past. Yeah. I, I will, and, and just listening to him not only speak about this film, but about speaking about the witch. And um, I think there was a conversation he had with Ari Aster where he, he really went into his, um, uh, his love of history and, and like his, just his research process. And you, you don't really get filmmakers with that sort of attention to detail that are are willing to go in 100% in a way that's yeah in such a distinct way and so you're right it is it's a very um it's refreshing i i guess is the right word for it mm-hmm. and, and from my understanding because because of this authenticity and because of like the the dialect was so specific um there there wasn't much I guess wiggle room uh, in in terms of the script, but I, I was curious if there were like any uh, like character quirks or like ideas that that you brought to the table um, that that maybe sort of found its way into into the into your performance. No. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> no, but listen, I always feel like listen, I'm a, as an actor, I'm a filmmaker, but I never feel like I deal with ideas. I deal with actions Mm -hmm. and submitting to the actions and then something happens. And I suppose that becomes an idea, but I never put forward an idea because that I'm not an interpreter. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm more like an athlete or a dancer, you know? Yeah. And, and things are expressed in, in, um, doing the bidding of the person that's overseeing the world. And that usually is the director. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, oh, and, no, no, for and, sure. Yeah. I yeah. mentioned that. I mean, your question's good, but when you talk about ideas or, you know, authorship of things that are invented, you don't think about that. I don't, you know? Right. Well, I, I, that just gets me thinking then, I guess if you were to take that a step further, when you're, when you're given characters that are, I guess, based off of existing source material, whether it be like, you know, actual histories such as like Jesus Christ or, or Van Gogh right. or right. say like, you know, comic books like Norman Osborn, for instance, how much I mean, like how much space do you have to be creative versus when you're presented with like an original character? Um, it's it's sort of all the same because. You're always going towards these things that aren't you, and you're leaving yourself behind and taking on their set of habits and thinking and 
and you're, you're building those, you're coming to them and your understanding, your experience of coming to them is, is the experience of making something because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't exist as an objective thing, even if it's a, a, a factual person. For example, the one of the beautiful things about At Eternity's Gate was it was not a biopic. It was like our attempt to imagine who Van Gogh was. And I think that freed it because if you get into a position of feeling like you have to de- you have to have an opinion about who Van Gogh is and tell people who he was, then it gets very tight and uh, you're just sort of serving yourself and you're not entering, um, you know, a state of curiosity and wonder that lets you go beyond your experience Mm. and really connect with the experience of someone else. Those things always become an extension of your your projections. And I think we can do better than that. We can set up a situation that takes us beyond our experience and and touches some sort of um, elemental common experience. And that's why when you approach movies that way and you find that groove and it's, it's sincere and you do have a relationship to the material, I think people see it and they um, are able to see it through the thing you've made, not because of what you're saying, but because of what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like well, in this movie, you know, it's really dense. I mean, how people, it shifts around, but how people see the relationship between these two men and what happens to them really depends on what's going on in their life. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. I mean, you know, there's, you could, you could look at it as like, uh, like a, an old married couple, like trying to keep their, their marriage together. Um, right. I mean, you know, there's like elements of lust and like two guys fighting over a woman sort of thing. I, I mean, there's, yep. you're right. There is, there's so much that, that you can interpret from it. Um, and that's one of my favorite things is just the constant tug and pull that that's going on there uh, between you and uh, Robert Pattinson uh, yeah. and and the the unreliable narrators and stuff like that. But like and, and I've seen the film twice now, I, I always get the sense that like you might be manipulating him for your own amusement. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, did you uh, did you find that to be true at all when, when you were sort of reading through the script or is that just is that just me looking at it one way? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> every, every, and every, uh, every, what is it? Reflection is uh, valid, you know, yeah. that's fine. And, and I agree with that, but it's not, it's not the only thing that's sure. going on. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the one that I really respond to, I mean, it shifts around, but the, the thing that I keep on returning to is this guy and it's expressed in many different ways. And you're right. You're not sure what is true and what's a manipulation and what he is non reliable narrator. But you, the main thing is this guy is a believer and he's dedicated his life to this way that he lives. And when this other guy comes on board, he wants to, sort of convert him. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And when it doesn't quite happen, um, his own situation starts to unravel. And, and that's an interesting thing uh, to watch when, when a way, 
a, a way, a belief system and a way of living that has been really, um, that a person has dedicated their life to starts to be questioned. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting to me. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, the, and then there's the extra, there's many, um, side issues with that. But you know, the fact that he, unless this guy, the new guy comes into line with his beliefs, he's not going to turn them on to the mystery of the light. Right. He's not even going to let them up there. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, so it's, yeah. it's got elements of like the old guard, the old belief system with the, uh, you know, unfocused, uh, you know, not quite showing their cards, uh, belief system. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a great, I, I that, it, that did, uh, strike me when, when watching it as, as well. That was a very, um, that was a part that I enjoyed about it a little bit. Uh, mo- moving away from the lighthouse though, a little bit, I do sure. want to talk, um, about motherless Brooklyn. Um, because okay. I did get a chance to check that out and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was a great throwback to uh, like classic noir films. Um, right. but the, the, the interesting thing is, uh, is in both motherless Brooklyn and, and the like in the lighthouse, they, um, but both films have this sort of distinct stage play. Um, they, they have these distinct stage play attributes to them. Whereas, like you know, the lighthouse is more traditional Shakespearean. Mother, motherless Brooklyn. I, I picked up a lot of you know more New York theater scene influences. Cats, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, like um, I mean specifically in terms of the the writing. Uh, I I got a lot of Mamet. Uh, from it, and so I'm, I'm curious right. if you could talk a little bit about like some of the the similarities and differences between your approach uh, when you're given something that that's more based in m- more rooted in like a, a London stage play versus something that's that's very New York based. You know, when I'm approaching these things, uh, the theater and plays are the first thing from my mind, mm. and I get why you say it, but I don't think of them. I think they're both very cinematic. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, the, the only thing that makes them, there's writing, you know, because most, uh, and often I find the most interesting aspects of um, cinema are not the writing, not mm. the dialogue. But in both these cases, I, I think the writing, uh, in both in Motherless Brooklyn and uh, The Lighthouse, the, the writing is great. Yeah. They're very different kinds of writing, but that was one of the first things that I had to deal with in preparation uh, for the two movies. Mm, okay. And one, and and both of them have a similar problem that they're not problem, but um, they're they're dense and they're uh, full of images. Uh, in the case of um, and, and references to uh, mythology, like in the case of uh, the lighthouse, and in uh, Motherless Brooklyn, uh, it's pointing to all this socio-political stuff. Yeah. But in both of them, you want to be clear. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. want to have it be conveyed, and you want to have it be conveyed in the context of the story in a way that the writing doesn't stick out. So um, with with Motherless Brooklyn, uh, you know, I'm I'm a character that is under the gun. He's marginalized. Uh, it feels like he's going to get the hook any moment. So I knew I had to talk very fast, and I have much to say. Yeah. So um, my rhythms personally are very slow. So I knew I had to ramp it up, and 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 uh, get really um, 
fat, uh, you know, fluid with that stuff, yeah. but also have terrific clarity because I'm presenting a lot of, a lot of information and a lot of, um, ideas there. So that was one of the challenges I would say. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I'm curious about what it was like kind of working with Edward Norton, the actor versus Edward Norton, the director. Cause I, I, I know Norton talked a bit about like how his, his approach to this film specifically was very like hands off because he wanted to bring in people who were, uh, you know, professionals and very, very much steeped right. in the, the New York uh, theater culture. Yeah. I think he, he didn't want, uh, he wanted, you know, people that could kind of uh, take care of themselves. But, uh, you know, the director and the actor, Ed Norton, uh, Edward Norton, are the same guy, and they're in the scene with you. So he can also direct from inside <laughs> yeah. in the respect that he can set the tone um, since he's the principal character, uh, even if it's a scene where I'm driving, let's say, mm -hmm. where I'm driving the scene. Um, He's rooting it because he's the uh, center of this story. So um, the fact that you've got the director in the scene with you really allows you to be very, uh, very quick, very efficient. And there isn't that kind of sense of, you know, always having to refer to an out outside eye. You're doing what you're doing. You're kind of in free fall. <laughs> yeah. You're not checking yourself. No one's running. And it was a similar thing in the lighthouse, but very different because it was very, um, designed even before we were starting, you know, uh, the shots were very designed. It was very, uh, planned out because of the harsh situations. And because, uh, Rob Eggers is, has, has envisioned these scenes with such clarity. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, I, I know I got to start wrapping this up. I do have two quick questions for you, if you'll, yep. if you'll indulge me. Um, so I, it, it seems to me that you are just, you're constantly working and you manage to be consistently doing it at, at such a high level. Um, and, and I've always just been curious, you know, I, I know you, you, you had your own like theater company for 30 years and, and given right. your work in the theater, like, is that something that, um, it kind of informs your decision to want to constantly work. Uh, are there ever times when you, you think, oh, man, I kind of want to take a little bit of a break here? Or do you just like the constant uh, hustle, I guess? You know, it's not constant. Yeah. And, you know, I relax and I have fun when I'm working. Work is the easy part. Life is the tough part. <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah because there's a element of structured experience to that where I can really apply myself in a way where I, I really feel free mm. and I don't have to worry about certain things. Um, no, it's, uh, and also when you're in movement, when you're in movement and you feel well in movement, uh, I like that. I don't, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, too static, I mean, I believe in reflection, but I think you can do that even when you're in movement, that's yeah. the nature of performing. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah, I like to work. What can I say? Fair enough. Hey, fair enough. It's, I, I'm happy when I'm working, and it's not. It's it's because I still find it very mysterious, and um, I like I like the whole idea of waking up in the day and uh, knowing every day is going to be different, and the challenges are going to be different, and I'm going to be under the gun. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's part of what makes it so. 
Um, so exciting. Um, but uh, before I do let you go, I, I know you have uh, you're working with Guillermo del Toro coming up yep. on uh, yep. Nightmare Alley, yeah. which I, I'm very excited for. And I, I understand that this particular version is based predominantly on uh on the novel and I'm just uh, I'm curious like are you obviously you have to be but are are you excited to work with Del Toro can you tease anything about what we might expect from this particular adaptation not really (laughs) (laughs) it's too early yeah Yeah, of course I'm excited you know I met him many many years ago I mean I I had followed his work I I think after I saw uh, maybe not exactly proper chronological order but i saw devil's backbone and i said i gotta work with this guy mm. um so we had met we had been talking about that some uh and then last year also he was very generous uh with the release of uh at eternity skate he, he hosted a, a screening and sp- spoke so beautifully about the movie better than julie and i spoke about the movie <laughs> that uh you know, I made me uh, love him all the more. And then uh, this came up. Yeah, it was just it's a question of, uh, you know, planting seeds and having them bear fruit in a, a good way. I'm I'm really excited to work with him. I think he's a, a you know, great filmmaker. Yeah, well, I, everything is, is shaping up for this to just be a. A, a really uh, awesome project, so I'm very much looking for that, forward to that. But anyways, Willem, thank you so much for your time. I absolutely loved The Lighthouse, loved your performance great. in Motherless Brooklyn. Uh, your work is always great, so uh, thank you Thanks. again. Thanks. Enjoyed talking to you. Well, there you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Willem Dafoe. Truly a delightful human being who gave great answers. I could have talked to him for another 30 minutes or an hour or who knows how long. He was just really enjoyable to converse with, and especially when he started talking about his craft and his approach to performance. I just love hearing actors discuss that, and so getting him to kind of shed some light on that was one of my favorite parts of the conversation. Both The Lighthouse and Motherless Brooklyn are now playing in theaters, and I highly recommend checking out both of them. The Lighthouse is unlike anything I've really ever seen before, with one of the best scripts of the year, and Motherless Brooklyn is an excellent throwback to classic film noir with great performances and a lot of gumshoe intrigue that'll keep you guessing the whole way through. But the most important thing is I want to hear from you all, and I want to know what your favorite Willem Dafoe performances down in the comments section of wherever you're listening to this episode. And while I have your attention, why don't you take a second and subscribe to the Playlist Podcast Network for more episodes of The Fourth Wall along with the rest of our diverse film-centric catalog. And if you want to go the extra mile and you feel so inclined, it would be absolutely amazing if you left us a rating and a review as it greatly helps the show out, helps us get notice and it allows me to know what you're all loving and what you want to see more of next week or i guess it's this week it's the week of the 22nd we're going back to the schedule and i have a great conversation with t'challa black panther himself chadwick bozeman we're going to be talking about his new film 21 bridges which is produced by the russo brothers um that was another really fun one that i think you're going to enjoy as well so you 
have that to look forward to. But until then, uh, thank you all for listening. If you like me specifically and you like what I have to say, you can give me a follow on Twitter at Griff Schiller. All right, that's going to do it for this episode, and I'll catch you next time. Take care.